Welcome to Tom Rhodes Radio. Today's episode was recorded in Madison, Wisconsin. Last year, I performed at Comedy on State in Madison, this fabulous comedy club I had never played before. And I got to work with Carlos Valencia. Uh, I had met Carlos somehow Doug Stanhope related, either at Doug Stanhope's desert party or he had opened up for Stanhope. It was through Stanhope that I met Carlos, but I'd never seen him perform, worked with him the whole week. And, you know, you work with young guys sometimes and you just, you're like, yeah, this guy gets it. He is on it. He's following the comedy spiritual quest, if you will. Uh, I love Carlos. He's got some smart, dark material. He's a great guy to work with and hang out. And I recorded this wonderful chat with him at this coffee shop in Madison, Wisconsin last year. So please open your hearts for the one and only Carlos Valencia. Uh, now, we just finished this week in Madison, Wisconsin, and you're living the Jack Kerouac young comedian <laughs> on the road thing right now. You're sleeping in rest areas, yep. which I did when I was starting out on the road. So, I mean, what have you learned from America's rest areas? Well, I, uh, they're pretty scary sometimes. <laughs> I try to find the ones that are well lit, but I, you know, I, can't, I can't be picky. You know, I'm staying at a rest stop. I can't really be sending letters to the State Department or the Department of Transportation of Indiana because your rest stops aren't up to par. Well, you see a lot of them now have guards posted at night because, like, so many heinous murders have happened at <laughs> rest areas. Yeah, that's really fucking up my game, all these guards. Look at Michael Jackson's father. He, uh, no, I'm sorry, Michael Jordan's father right. was murdered. He was just getting a couple hours sleep in a rest area on his way back to his house from whatever trip. And then these guys like made a video where they're dancing with uh, Michael Jordan's championship rings that his father. Really? Yeah. Oh shit! I That's how they got him. Yeah. I didn't see. I wasn't living in the country when that. I knew it happened, but I didn't know that was all that. Yeah, they murdered Michael Jordan's Jeez. father, and then apparently he had like three or four of Michael Jordan's championship rings, and they went back to their trailer and they made a video where they're dancing around with these Holy rings shit. and. Uh, and that didn't help their court case at all. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it's hard to get away with those. What are some of the most epic things you've ever seen in a American rest area? Uh, well, the thing is, I don't get to see much because once I get to the rest stop, my usual, uh, the, what I usually do is I have an ambient prescription. So mm. I just, I literally, I just park my car, I recline my seat, I pop an ambient, and then I just hope for the best. That's the way I put it. It's like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'll be asleep. I might still get face raped, but at least I'll be asleep. When you wake up and the windows aren't broke and you're not breathing, right. you're like, wow, that was yeah, a good sleep. Yeah, exactly. That was relaxing. Five stars for this restaurant. <laughs> Any rest up I don't get murdered or raped at, it's a good one. I remember one of my first trips to California. I had driven days to get there and stopped somewhere in uh, the the bottom part of South of California, if you're driving to San Diego, whatever highway number that is, and I woke up and it was in the the morning and it was like kind of summer, so it was hot and I had my windows open and there was this massive group of like sixty Mexican like field worker guys and two of them were gonna fight like one of them had flirted with the guys other guy's wife or something at the rest stop at the, at the well i mean they had like made this appointment where these guys are gonna fight oh like really? something had built all of a sudden all these trucks and shit <laughs> all pull up and all these dudes jump out and there was this like dirt field next to the parking area and eucalyptus trees uh creating some shade 
and uh, it, it was it, it was an absolute heavyweight championship brawl. Wow! Just stick around. I watched it from the safe distance of my car. <laughs> you know, I was just imagining what could have led up to that. But, yeah, I did. I'm just. But God, what a fight! Yeah, I'm just surprised that that's where they chose to meet. Is the rest stop? That's the fighting. Epicenter. Right. Apparently, in that part of California, that's where they work shit out at. Well, see, I just, I just figured it was all blowjobs and gay <laughs> truckers, and apparently, belligerent Mexicans too. And uh, so, so how long you been on the road? And well, just uh, period, or this this particular tour? Yeah, period. I've been, well, I've been doing comedy for about seven years. I've been a, I've been full time for about the last three or four. I had a day job and I did stand up for a what while. What was your day job? I worked for a bank, Wachovia. I worked at the, and, and it, it was the worst, I mean, it, it wasn't a fun job regardless, but my hours were really bad because even though I only worked 20 hours, I worked Fridays and Saturdays, which is when most of the comedy gigs would be. So it got, eventually it got to the point where I had to take too many days off or turn down gigs. So I decided, well, I, you know, I'd rather do stand-up comedy, so I quit uh, the day job, and, you know, that's how long I've been broke, for about three <laughs> years. So, you know, so, yeah, I haven't, ever since then, I've just done straight-up road. Some, I can't, I'm not constantly on the road. Some months, I'm, I only have one gig. Some months, I'm like, this month, I've been gone for the whole month. So it just goes up and down, just trying to work up to where eventually, hopefully, I can have a solid year. And then, you know, hopefully eventually headline where I can make a little bit more money and actually pay down the debt. Uh, you know, I know you've traveled with Doug Stanhope and, and David Tell. Are you trying to do that kind of game plan where just create a core audience? Uh, yeah, that would be great. I mean, if I could do that, like if I, I think that, that, that to me, that's the best part about working with Doug Stanhope is because his crowd, he has a great crowd, and they're all really hardcore fans. Even though he's not a mainstream comic, the people that do know him love him. And so if I do well with his crowd, and I usually do, they're really good open-minded crowds, then some of them, a percentage of them, will start you know, either following me on Facebook or Twitter, or they're like, hey, when are you coming back to town? We'll come out to see you. And it's happened a few times where they've seen me with Stan Hope, and then I just happen to come back to that same town later on by myself, and they'll come out, and they've seen me one or two, you know, three times. I mean, it's a long process because, you know, it's not all of them are going to come see me. So they got it. And some of them have to see me several times before they're even going to be interested. But ideally, yeah, I would love it if I could get enough of a crowd that they would come see me and I could just put on my own independent show. Uh, you know, I, it, it would, you know, Doug's been doing it for 20 plus years, so he's already built quite a following. I, but if I could even do that at at a scale where it's like a 60-seat venue, I, I'd be happy doing that. Just do independent shows for my own crowd from city to city. But, it's, you know, it's a process. What advice would you give any comedians uh, going on tour opening for stand-up? I mean, that's... Um, um, it, it, uh, there's occupational risks. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there's, <laughs> to put it lightly. I was actually, I just made a joke I I wrote I wrote Stanhope today. It's like because he has a death pool. He does a celebrity death pool. Right. I was like, if you have, a, I was telling people, if you're if you're in a comedian death pool, then just look up whoever's opening for Doug Stanhope and just put <laughs> them on there, because they might not make it. Yeah, it's a lot of drinking. I mean, it's fun. It's it's it like I just did a month long tour with him. We went through 
Florida, pretty much every southeastern state, South Carolina, North Carolina, Louisiana, Alabama, and it was great. We, you know, we drank every night, and then, and then we had to because we were doing every we were doing 19 shows in no 17 shows in 19 days. We would pretty much do a show, get drunk, and then have to check out the next morning and drive to get to the next place. So, if you if you're not if you're not a big drinker, and I'm a I'm a drinker, but I still could barely keep up. You can't keep up with Stan Hope. He's just got 20 years on you. It's, the, it's impossible to catch up. But yeah, you better be ready to like change gears, like you know, get drunk every night and then get ready to wake up the next morning and travel again. But the shows are so good that that's what, even though it was physically exhausting sometimes, the shows made it worth it. Whereas if I was doing that same kind of tour on my own, doing like uh, like shithole one-nighters, like the stuff like casino gigs and shit, like stuff that I usually do, I don't think I could have made it because I wouldn't have, it would have been just too miserable. But the fact that we were doing actual good shows and the crowds were open-minded and, you know, the that was so much fun actually performing, that's what made it the whole thing worth it. So what's the wildest things that happened to you? On the tour? Yeah. Well, <laughs> Well, I don't. Uh, some of it I don't remember. I, my my recollection is sketchy sometimes. I remember once we were getting it was the Asheville show, and uh, after the we were gonna leave the venue, we were ready to go, and then a, a couple of Stanhope's fans just like rushed the van, like just got into the van. They just decided they were gonna roll with us, so they took us. He was like, "No, let's go to this next bar." And and Doug, I mean Doug was like, all right, fine, we'll let's go. And it was and they drove us to like a sketchy part of town, where it didn't even look like there was a bar there. It just looked like we were gonna get murdered. But there was a bar, and we went in, and we hung out for a while. But then that that same dude that was in the van started a fight with some other fan of Stanhope's. Because that's the other thing, like they're rabid fans of Stanhope. I like him more. No, I right, like him yeah. more. Exactly. That's one of the things they have in common is that they hate each other. They they love Stanhope, but they hate each other. So they start fighting, and they go to they they hit the ground, and I don't know. Like I I see that happening, and I'm just like, okay, I'm done. I walk away. I'm just like, I don't want to deal with this. But Doug, like he was right into it, trying to like separate them and shit. Like his actual plan was to go into his go into one of his closing bits that he hadn't done that night. It's like, hey guys, listen, listen, hey, I'm gonna do this bit, guys. Come on, break it up. And wow. he tried to get their attention by trying to do his closing, but it didn't work. But he got, uh, he eventually did get him separated, and then, uh... The potty mouth Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so... <laughs> solving problems. <and laughs> I know. Solving people with this soothing joke idea. Exactly. It was like, yeah, your jokes are pretty good at getting people angry, but not as much <laughs> at breaking up fights. But, uh, eventually, they eventually got pulled off from each other, and then Doug... Uh, swipe. I don't even know if I. Should, ah, fuck it. He swiped the guy's jacket, the guy, the guy who started the fight, the asshole, and we just kind of we kept it for the rest of the tour. It was like this big heavy leather jacket, <laughs> and Doug's idea. We didn't do anything really with it, but Doug's idea was that we should just take because the the guy with the jacket he was kind of the asshole that instigated the fight. Yeah. So Doug's idea was, hey, let's let's take this jacket and then just take pictures of. Let's just find like dirty homeless people to wear it <laughs> and take pictures all along the tour of 
nasty, rotten people wearing this. Doug has a funny way of exacting uh, revenge. Yeah, he's got great ideas. He really does. But really sometimes the, he doesn't pull through. <laughs> like, he'll have great ideas when he's drinking at night, and then the next day he's like, ah, yeah, it seemed like a good idea at the time. So what did you learn most uh, traveling with Doug Stanhope? Uh, I, uh, well, what, what I was really impressed with is, I've worked with him for the past five, yeah, about five years. But not this was the longest tour I ever did with him. Usually I do I do like two or three gigs with him a year. Is that what what impressed me is that he he writes so much new material, and he just like because he does nothing that's already on on video or on audio CD or whatever. So when when the tour started, his Showtime special had just aired. He didn't do any of that. He was doing a whole new hour hour and a half. And he was crushing it every single time, like he was. It was, it, like he was getting standing ova ovations, and he's doing material that's just that they're not because I think even if he wanted to, he could probably still do like his old classics, and people would still be like hell yeah because they just you know they would love to hear the old class. But he does do does nothing of that, and every year he's doing new material and still crushing it. But what was what was really impressive though that I hadn't seen before it was. Uh, we did a gig in Fort Pierce, Florida, and uh, it, it, it's it, it was it's the first time I ever worked with Doug where it wasn't Doug's crowd. It was just a gig that they booked because we had a day off. So I they think were, it was Casey Peruski's gig, right? Is that what I don't know? I think so. I try to forget it because it was awful. It was oh, like really? yeah, because it was like well the setup was fine. The setup it was a little dinner theater. But it was well, it had a dinner theater vibe. But that's also the kind of crowd that showed up. They just showed up to see a stand-up show. They weren't really... There were maybe 10% of the audience was there as Stanhope fans. And I'd never seen that because when I started working with Doug, he was he had already quit the comedy clubs. And so the people that were coming out to see him were his fans as opposed to like back in the day when he was doing comedy clubs and walking people and all that. This particular time was the first time and it was a bunch of old people. And like I went up, I... Like I, the way I tell it is that I, I got... I, my intro gets screwed all the time. People screw up my name. I got introduced as Ricky Valendez <laughs> that night. And I was like, after my set, I was like, yeah, that's fine. That, that was Ricky Valendez. He can take credit for that set. But then I was like, it's, I hope he closes with La Bamba. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know where they get this shit. It's, it's my, yeah, well, that's a whole other story. But anyway, after I got off the stage, because the other opener that was with us too, Junior Stopka, he's also a very funny guy. But he's even more absurd, and so they were—they didn't get him either. So I was like, "How is Doug gonna handle this?" Because it's the first time I ever seen him uh, do a show for old people that weren't there to see him. And then he went up, and he made it work. He still made it kind of like, like those. I guess you never lose the chops, you know. He's been doing it for twenty plus years. You know, it wasn't always his crowd, and he still. So he still handled it great. He did the same material that he did at the other places. I mean, he wasn't getting like the raucous responses that he was getting at the rock clubs and stuff, but he was still making people laugh and he made the whole show work. Like he, he like he, he described it as bombing. Like he was, he was like, this is the most fun I've ever had bombing because he didn't give a fuck, but he, he was doing fine. I mean, it was, it was just not the raucous rock star as the other shows, but it was still really impressive to see that, you know, a guy that, at this point, is doing his own shows, being confronted with a situation that he doesn't really 
have to deal with anymore and still dealt with it. Uh, you've also toured with David Tell. So are you trying to align yourself with with dark comedians and hope that you will be a dark... Uh... Well, <laughs> I actually, well, the, with Attell, I've only worked a couple of times. I, uh, I, but I am, I do, that is my favorite kind of comedy. Like, the, like Attell and Stanhope are probably my favorite comedians of right now. I'd, I'd love to work more with, with Dave, but I just, I don't know him as, actually the first time I met him, I think, was when uh, you were in town and you did a guest spot at the Punchline in Atlanta. Oh, I thought you knew him before that. No, I think. Well, I met him a couple of days before that because our buddy Matt Davis was uh, in town too. But yeah, no, those are the kind because I can do a lot of very dark material. I don't usually do it if I'm uh, middling at a comedy club because, for one thing, uh, I don't want to go too dark, and uh, and if the headliner isn't dark, then you know I don't want to ruin it for them. It's not my show. It's just, I just, I'm just the middle guy. I'm trying, you know, I'm the transition between the MC and the headliner. I don't want to make it about me. I don't want to turn the crowd against me, against every, you know, the show talking about abortion or religion or stuff like that. But what's fun about working with uh, Doug or the, or the few times I've done shows with Attell is that their crowds, they know what they're in for. You know, if they're fans of Stanhope or Attell, there's really nothing I can say that's going to turn them off. They're not going to be like, oh, my God, I can't believe you just said that. Stan Hope would have never stood for that. So they're cool and open-minded in that sense. So, yeah, I like doing those kinds of shows because it gives me absolute freedom to do whatever I want to do. Whereas if I'm not, uh, if I, you know, my, the, my regular comedy club shows are just populated by, a, you know, a wide breadth of diverse people. I can still do that, and it's still fun, but I don't... I, I censor myself more when I know I'm not the... Well, how much did you censor yourself here in Madison? I thought you got uh, doing your regular dark stuff. I did. Well, I still do dark stuff just because it's the only... It, it, it keeps it fun for me. But oh, was this your lighter dark stuff that you were... Compared, <laughs> compared to, compared to uh, what I do with, when I'm touring with Stanhope, yeah. It actually is because I do... I mean, some of the bits I still did when I worked with Stanhope, but, but like... Like religion is a big one where it's really like I, I go really hardcore uh, about religion or abortion jokes or, you know, just topics that are that are uh, edgy, for lack of a better word. So, I, yeah, I actually do uh, pull it back. Like I was one. Uh, I was glad I didn't have to because we came in a day early on Wednesday to hang out with Doug because he just happened to be here uh, the day before we were working at the Madison Club. And I was glad to just hang out. I didn't want to, I didn't really, wasn't looking to get on stage, but I was afraid for a second that Doug might be like, hey, do a spot. Because if I did a spot, I would have done really dark shit. And then I would have been afraid, like, uh-oh, if the management is oh, the here, they're so. going to be like, uh-oh, this, this, and I'd have to like explain, like, no, listen, I'm just doing this because <laughs> I know I can get away with it in this situation. But don't worry, I'm not going to be trying not to get fired before the engagement. Right, exactly. Begins. Yeah, so I'd have to start my whole set with a disclaimer if I did a spot in front of Stanhope. You did the thing last night, um, kind of a rape joke, and then you said, well, don't, don't worry, people. It wasn't a legitimate rape joke. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's pretty funny. Thank you. Well, considering that, that Republican tirade or right. well, explanation that, of what they thought. Yeah, does that make any sense? I mean, that, that's, that's the thing. It's like, uh, that's, well, that's what I follow that when I say it's a 
it's not a legitimate rape joke. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what that means, but it's just, that's why it's so ridiculous. That's why it's funny. But it's funny because uh, I, I started telling that joke when I was on tour with Stanhope, and all those people loved it. Like, I would get an applause break after every time I said that. And then after that, I went to do just my regular shows at, you know, at whatever random uh, city in the Midwest, and I would get nothing. Like, this week was cool. I get Like, they were re receptive to it. But some shows I did last week in Michigan and Indiana, I would I would do that. I was like, oh, listen, that's a, not a legitimate rape joke. And they would either cringe or I would just get nothing. So it's like really dependent on the crowd. I thought the audience here, the audiences here in Madison were unbelievable. The really intelligent. Yeah. Uh, they they liked the my most twisted dark material. Mm -hmm. Those were the jokes that hit the hardest. Yeah. And just not the white bread Midwest. Um, Ham and eggers, you would imagine. No, no, it was great. I was, I, I'd always, I'd always heard good things about Madison at the club here, and it had lived up to the expectations. I'm always, but it's because it's my first time here. That's another thing I take into consideration. If it's my first time working at a particular club, I try to not, you know, get into too much trouble. You know, I, I, I don't push the edges as much as I would if I'd already been to the club before, because I. I'm still thinking like I want to come back. I want to be hired back. So if I push the edge, and it doesn't hit, then then I'm screwed because then they might you know the management or whoever makes the decisions might be like ah yeah he wasn't too good and we don't know if we want this guy back. Like I almost I'm in Apple. That's the gamble. You never know what the sensibilities of the club owner is going to be. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Some club owners are they don't like you talking about politics. Right. They've got their own. Uh, staunch way of yeah. what they want the message to be coming out. Right, and it's yeah, and it's funny because sometimes you might be doing great with the crowd, but if the if you if you hurt the manager's sensibilities, he's the only one that makes the decisions. He can be like, I don't like what this guy talked about. I know other comics that can make people laugh too. Maybe not as much, but I uh, you know I don't have a problem with whatever their material is, and then you're out. Uh, I remember, and I think this ended up being a blessing in my career when I was starting out on the road like you and sleeping in rest areas and going from gig to gig. I think I was hitting it harder than, uh, anyone or you. Um, but the caravan comedy tour booked out of Louisville oh, yeah. by Tom Sobel, they had all these gigs all over the, the Midwest, you know, and the comedy zones had the, all over the Southern circuits and, uh, I was trying to break into better, good clubs. I was really sick of doing one-nighters. But they ran uh, or booked the club in Indianapolis at the time. And some woman had written a letter that I had um, ruined her grandmother's 80th birthday, that she had brought her grandmother, that, uh, that they didn't one? like things that I was talking about. Oh, okay. And um, Tom Sobel wrote her a letter uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the secretary who worked in the office at the time made me Xerox copies of each letter. I, I, I still have them somewhere. Uh, but he said that, um, Mr. Rhodes had adopted a, uh, rebellious <laughs> attitude, um, and, and, um, uh, was doing a, a, developing a new style of, of, of being more dark than he has been 
working for us previously. And he said, and although we miss, we wish Mr. Rhodes the best in his new endeavor, <laughs> we will not be working him anymore. Really? Yes. <laughs> I, uh, I just, and anyway, I think it turned out to be a blessing because like most of those gigs that the guy booked were just absolute shit. Right. And the fact that I didn't have to work for Tom Sobel, uh, like a lot of comedians did yeah. for, for his peanut money. Um, I think it was a blessing. And, you know, that letter, it's a good story. Yeah, I I would love to be able to, because to just be able, I would love to be able to just do it's, the gigs. It was on his to. comedy caravan stationery, too. Really? <laughs> nice. It's official, then. That makes it official. I, I, yeah, I, there's, there's gigs that I don't do anymore. Like, there's certain bookers that I don't work with anymore where even though I need the money, I don't I don't really sweat it too much because the, the gigs are so shitty where it's like I I'd be making the money but then I'd be miserable too and if I'm you know the only reason I'm doing stand-up comedy is because it's supposed to be something I enjoy doing you gotta limit those things and I, I call it the blowing the guys at the bus station I've done the comedy yeah. equivalent of blowing guys at the bus station <laughs> and that's the 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 little one-nighters where you feel like a yeah. Or, you know, unfortunately, like, at least in my case, I, there are certain places that I've cut out, but because I'm in the transition phase between I mostly feature a middle, uh, I headline some, not much. But when I do headline, I just got to I can't be choosy about those because I just got to take whatever headlining gigs come my way because they're not very many. And in order, that's that's like the catch 22, like uh, Places won't headline you unless you've been headlining, and then you can't headline because you know you, nobody's giving you the opportunity. So the few times, the few chances that I get to headline, I take them. But unfortunately, at, at first, at least, they're gonna be you know they're gonna be shitty one nighters or clubs that aren't that great. So, and in one in one sense, it'll it'll kind of teach you how to handle a bad situation. But it's also like a trial under fire, where it's just not not the ideal situation where you want to be, but you know, that's, that's everything, you know, I can't, I can't skip that part. Yeah, you can't. Uh, what are some of the worst experiences you've had in stand up? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I've died on stage plenty of times. Not like that. I mean, you know, we felt like a real whore. Oh, like, Oh, like that. Oh, <laughs> or fights or, uh, you know, no drunk chicks. Well, when I, uh, when I was first starting out, as an open micer, I was doing a lot of one-liners and, you know, stuff that I was clever. Like, Mitch Hedberg was one of my favorite comics, so I, I was imitating his style pretty much. I was doing my own jokes, but I was imitating his style. But then when I hit the road, it's really hard to get, you know, people at the Electric Cowboy in Texarkana, Arkansas, <laughs> to pay attention to one-liners. So I ended up developing a style that wasn't just, it just wasn't true to me. Like, I was just, I was talking, of like, I was make, doing jokes about when I started out, uh, like about ninjas or whatever, but they didn't care about ninjas in Texarkana. So, so I started to say, well, what can these people relate to? And then I started doing more dick jokes and more, uh, more drink. I still do drinking jokes and dick jokes, but back then I did even more. And then just like really sexually explicit jokes where it was like getting easy laughs, but I just wasn't proud of what I was doing. And, but I, and I did that for at least for two years, because I was just doing all these sh shitty one uh, one nighters and redneck bars, doing doing hacky NASCAR. Like now, I tell a joke about NASCAR, where I'm essentially calling people that uh, follow NASCAR dumb. It's a little more. It's, 
Groundbreaking. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but before that, before when I did these redneck towns, I would be too scared to tell that joke. I'd be like, oh, let me switch it up. Let me just say that uh, uh, Jeff Gordon is gay. And then I'll just do hack it up. So those, yeah, I, I think that's a way to put it because I usually, when I think of bad shows or stuff that I'm, that was, a, you know, that I'm embarrassed about, it, I never think about those days. Maybe I just try not to think about it. Just now, actually, I think is I'm, when I'm trying to grow into doing more material, material that's true to what I feel like making fun of or just talking about. Uh, you got a great self-deprecating observation about yourself, about um, looking like an Amish Mexican Jew. <laughs> yeah. And I was telling you last night, I think you ought to go all the way with that and do the little prayer uh, threads down the side <laughs> off the pants and the... The squiggly, the squiggly sideburns? Yeah, yeah, that would be hilarious, especially... You should go all the way with this. And just just never mention it and say, <laughs> just go up like a full-on Jew and tell dick jokes. And <laughs> that would be hilarious. Be, uh, speak as unorthodox as, as... Yeah, as possible. And just never mention the fact that I look like a full-on Jew. Lenny Bruce, uh, who was Jewish, uh, what some time in his career and he was living in Miami, he got a priest outfit and he was going around to different uh, Catholic society women's houses and like counseling them, pretending like he really? was a priest. Yeah. How did he pull he that He just out? wore this, this suit. Uh, um, That's all you need? This priest outfit. I guess all you need is the little white thing under the, on the, on the collar. That's kind of like when you see commercials and a guy's in a lab coat, you're, you're supposed to assume he's a doctor. So that's all it takes. You just need the uniform. Exactly. And then people will buy into it. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. How much? It's kind of like those people that, like, like the Rolling Stones, call themselves the greatest rock and roll band in the world. Nobody named them that. I just start calling themselves that, and people just buy into it. Great. Yeah. So just start calling myself like the greatest Jewish comedian in America, <laughs> and people will buy into it. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> the uh, last comic standing uh, of Israel, champion. <laughs> <laughs> So what are some of your what are what are some of your obsessions in life? Like what what strange hobbies or you know, I was just thinking about that today and that I I really I don't like aside from just the stand up, when I go home, I just chill out. Like I get so like I'm when I'm out when I'm uh, out traveling on the road, I drink, you know, I drink just about every show. I have my fun on the road. But then when I go home, I just I just chill out. I just really don't don't like I, I watch sports here and there, but my most of my teams are from the New York area because I was born in New Jersey. So my so I can't see my teams in Atlanta, so I can't follow that. So other than that, I really and I don't really watch much television. I watch like Breaking Bad and uh, what's the others? Oh, Louis Show. I really like. I think Louis if there was Show. more crystal meth in professional sports, I'd watch it more. Often. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the problem. If there was more. <laughs> If, yeah, we just got to get meth into every single show. I'd go to church if there was more meth in in the church uh, area. No, I don't, I really don't have anything. Like, I, I wish I, like, I always tell myself, like, I wish I wrote more. I wish I read more. But I never, I, I don't know, I, I guess I just get home and I just get, I'd have to start. Like, I want to relax and not worry about things. Like, what do you, do, do you get? Do you do things? Like I have all kinds of strange hobbies and obsessions, you know? Um, How right do you now, have time to, like... Do, like got loads of time. We work one hour a night. Well, that know? is true. 
Yeah, but I'm, but you're traveling all the time, though. Does yeah, but not every day traveling. You know, um, I just read this Jack Dempsey book about his life and the the Roaring Twenties in America, and and now I'm reading this history of Chicago organized crime. Oh yeah. I, um, so so like right now, I'm, and that's why I wanted to go to that Manitowish Waters. Oh yeah. In Wisconsin, because Dillinger had this. Um, Big shootout with the FBI there. So once I finish this book, I want to find a book on Dillinger. So I don't know. I'm in this little. Do you, does it take you from one teens thing to and twenties uh, America right now? See, I think I get into that sort of thing on online. Like I, I'm online a lot. I think I do that like with Wikipedia. Like I start for some reason. I'll start. Let's just say Dillinger. It comes up on a news story. So I'll start reading about that, and then that will get me into whatever the Chicago mob scene, and then from there. I want to read about, they'll just name some random name that I don't recognize, click on that, and then I'll just spend two hours researching stuff that I didn't even, I didn't even plan out to, you know, read about. I, did, I used to, when I had Netflix, I would, I would uh, listen to a lot of, or watch a lot of documentaries. I, lo- I like that, but I don't have Netflix anymore, but I love watching documentaries. Mm. My wife and I watch them all the time when we're traveling. Uh, there's uh, topdocumentary.com or... You could Google um, free BBC, uh, BBC free online documentaries, something like that. Yeah. There's so many great BBC documentaries, oh, yeah. and they're all online. I haven't seen, I, I've heard great things about them. I haven't seen very many of them. I'd love to. What are, have you seen anything good recently? Uh, yeah, Century of Self is great. Uh, Sigmund Freud's nephew who um, Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson hired him to go to France for the Versailles Accords when they were signing the treaties to end World War I. Uh-huh. And Woodrow Wilson wanted him to be a, uh, do the PR for um, spreading the idea of America. We are fighting for, uh, we stand for democracy for humans. Okay. And uh, to, to, to spread that, like build the brand of America. Build the brand of America that we 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 um we're for human rights and um not human rights but just democracy and in governments. And uh this guy came back from America and public um propaganda was what it was called. They the Germans had given propaganda a dirty name during the war. Uh-huh. So when he came back to the states he changed it to Public relations. And, oh, and the guy invented public relations in the United States. And then the cigarette companies hired this guy, Sigmund Freud's nephew. I forget his name. Really smart guy. Uh, they wanted women didn't smoke cigarettes. It was taboo. So they wanted women to smoke. You know, they're half the market isn't even right. using their product. So they did a... He hired a, a psychologist to, to survey women of what it was they didn't like about cigarettes, and it represented the male penis to them. Really? And uh, he wanted to change it that if, if you could give women their own penises, <laughs> they would want to smoke. This this sign of independence. And so the suffragette movement was happening, and women wanted to vote. He paid these debutante girls in their 20s to stop in the middle of the march and roll up their skirts and pull out cigarettes and light them. And they were called freedom torches. Freedom torches. Freedom torches. These women that wanted to vote, and I'm independent, and a woman can be like a man. And that's when cigarettes took off. 
And this guy also, um, Sigmund Freud hated America, didn't want to come here. The nephew got the rights to his books and started promoting them, getting them in the newspapers. Freud's theory on uh, the, um, you know, Oedipus complex and different yeah. things that's, that's in uh, all of our common knowledge now. This guy got slipped in Freud's messages and, and made him become a bestseller. So, so he's pretty much the reason why Sigmund Freud is a household name in America? Yeah, it probably would have happened uh, at a much slower rate. Over 20 to 50 years. Right. I don't, who knows? Maybe he would have just died in obscurity. Yeah, well, if you, I wonder what he would have done now, especially with, you know, instruments like the Internet or, or the viral mar marketing and all that. He probably would have been a master of that kind of thing. Publicity. I, that's, that's, a, that's, that's all that kind of stuff is always interesting to me, like, like the free economics kind of stuff. And, and uh, like I read The Tipping Point a while ago. Because I, in the in the in the business that we're in, it's always about you know a big portion of it is marketing yourself, and I'm awful at it. I don't, I like the comedy, I like the doing the jokes, telling the jokes, but as far as like promoting myself, I don't. It's just not in my name. Why did I? I went into comedy because I didn't want to work. <laughs> right, I didn't want exactly. to have a job. Yeah. And now it's like a lot of it is like, then you got to answer, you know, uh, friggin' people writing you on. You know, on Twitter, Twitter, and, and everything. Yeah, gotta do podcasts. <laughs> yeah, get stuck doing podcasts. I, I, if I honestly, if I wasn't a stand-up comic, I don't think I'd even bother with. I, I wouldn't bother with Twitter. I might have a Facebook just so I could stalk uh, old high school crushes or something. But as far as like updating it, I probably would never do any of that. But that's essential. I mean, that's like I always, every now and again, like. Newer comics will ask me questions about shit, and I don't know shit, but I, what I tell them is, like, you can be the funniest motherfucker in the world, but if nobody knows who you are, then you're never going to get anywhere. Whereas, on the other hand, I know some comics that have started out around the same time I did that are way, like, way ahead professionally, like, they're working a lot more than I am. In my opinion, they're not very good, but they're monster promoters. Like, they'll, they'll grab a gimmick, or they'll, or, or they'll have a catchphrase, or that sort of thing. And it's just not, I just, I'm just no good at it. I guess that's why we get managers and stuff like that, so they can take care of that sort of thing. Yeah, but, you know, sending out Twitter, your, your manager can't send out clever Twitter messages. Right, yeah, that's true. I am, I am trying to get better about that, just at least updating my Facebook and my Twitter at least once a day to at least the people that are following me now, at least, you know, at least I'm on their radar. Even if they don't read my update every single day, at least every now and again, I pop up on their whatever time timeline or, or update or whatever. So they're like, oh, yeah, that guy. What advice would you give to young comedians? Not to listen to me. No, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't. Or what's the best advice you've ever been given as a comedian? I would. I, well, what I, I, I always because because comics will ask me stuff. And uh, and I always just say, like, I can only tell you what my experience has been. I don't know what the right way of doing things or the wrong way of doing things is. So I would, I, I can't, I can't really say what's what, what the best or what the what the worst is. Of course, like you always hear, and I would always obviously encourage somebody to do what they, what you know, what's true to them. But that's really hard to push on somebody. You know, it, it, you can't teach a person to be true to themselves. And sometimes it's hard if you're doing like road gigs and for stupid people that you're gonna want to pander 
but eventually you got to just you got to grow out of it you got to i mean maybe do it to get by for a few years but don't get stuck in that rut like i know comics that have started out you know along the same time that i have that i did and they start getting a lot of road gigs and they kill on the road but they're doing very hacky material they're doing really run in the mill shit well that's what i've said uh for years is that you got to be careful as a young comedian uh, if you're on the road constantly, you can develop what I call a road stink, mm-hmm. where you've got this just really, you know, glossy kind of um, making it work for for middle America dull minds instead of being challenging. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and if you get, it's a it's a mixed blessing to get a lot of road work at the beginning because you might get complacent you might get like oh, i'm getting enough road work and i've got this this whatever 30 minutes or 45 or because you know there's some there's some headliners that are doing they've been doing the same hour for the last 15 years because it just works on the road and they just do that and i think right and they're never gonna be anything other than a road community. exactly that's certain death in this business yeah and it's i do the same thing over and over but like you were saying earlier about going into a new club not wanting to do your darkest material yeah. You know, and yeah, exactly. That's something I'm still dealing with. Like, I don't, I don't, I want to still be true to myself, but I still, I, I, I'm, I'm still holding back. I'm still, to be honest, I'm still, I can't, I don't uh, go full on with my darkest shit because I'm still concerned about being booked. So I'm still, you know, I'm still on that edge where I don't want to go too, too much on one side and too much on the other. And also, like I heard, I think it was Patton Oswalt, I heard him say once that you don't, you also don't want to be just an L.A. and New York comic. Like you don't want to become that either, whereas you can do L.A. or New York, but you can't do the road at all. So like if it's a, I think it's a good idea to have a balance where you do have something that's more maybe clever or avant-garde or, or, or absurd or dark, but you can still flex your muscles and on the road still be able to do you know work the the grind while still you know doing doing the new york like if you're too much on one side or the other then odds are i don't know career-wise how it's going to work but i'm not a i'm not going to be as big a fan like i like one of the comics i like the most is bill burr like i love bill burr and he and he's the kind of guy that he can do the alternative rooms and he can go out on the road and smash it too so I would lo- I would love to be able to find that equilibrium where I can do you know the more alternative rooms or the you know the clever stuff but also still hit the road and be able to connect with Well once you have uh, a big enough following you can do whatever you want once you've got your audience That's right. So you need to be spending sending out more Facebook bulletins and <laughs> Twitter <laughs> I actually I've gotten in trouble from cuz actually when I work with Stanhope I will I, I leech off a lot of his fans. Like if they say like, oh, Doug, great show in Tampa. And I was on the Tampa show. Then I'm like, oh, I'm going to try to add this person. But somehow, now Facebook's got it where uh, if you add too many people and too many of them deny you, then you get blocked. Like that happened to me at the very the very first day of the tour. I added a bunch of people with the Stanhope tour. And I guess well, you friend requested. I friend requested them. Yeah. And uh, and enough of them uh, denied me, 
that I got blocked from adding people for two weeks. For next over three wow, weeks. Wow, I didn't when, even know that they had to. Yeah, and that was the extent of the tour. So like I was, <laughs> my whole plan was to add people at every stop, but then I got banned. So I couldn't add anybody for that whole month that I was with them. So it kind of backfired on me. But they, at Facebook, they, they'll, they'll even suggest people to you. They'll be like, hey, you might want to be friends with this person. And so I'll add them. And then if they say no, then I'm fucked. So it's kind of, the way I see it is entrapment is what it is. I can't, I, now I'm, so now I got to be careful. And Twitter, I, I don't know how to, because you can't just uh, request people to follow you on Twitter. They got to come up to you. I'm up to I'm up to 400 though. So that a boy. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm getting there. That a boy. I, I just got into it in like the last year, and uh, what I've got and two two thousand two hundred and something minus thirty that you lost minus thirty from the, <laughs> my Mitt Romney joke. It's a hilarious. I read joke. in the newspaper that Mitt Romney was a Mormon. I think it was a typo. <laughs> That's what I love. Thirty people. Unfollowed me. <laughs> well, there's, thir there's 30 people that you don't want anyway. Right. Sensitive little pansies. I just had a, I did a show last week in Indiana because I do ra I do racial stuff. I do, but I always I premise it with saying like I'm not a racist. I don't want I'm not trying to come across as because I don't I'm not racist. But I do like telling darker jokes about well literally I guess darker jokes but jokes about black people or any race. I make jokes about Mexicans, black people, Asians, everybody. Anyway. It's, but it's never hateful. It's just jokes. And then a show, I was doing a show in Indiana. And after the show, this black lady came up to me and, uh, and she was genuinely upset at me. She was like, you really think you should be making fun of black people with the state of America today? And I wasn't really sure what that meant, but I was just trying to tell her, well, I don't, it's just jokes. So you didn't, you don't like the jokes? And she was, and then what she, it eventually escalated to her saying, you know what? I better not see you in the parking lot. After mm. the show, like she was threatening to beat me up in the parking lot because apparently that's a better way of handling things in America is with violence. It's the way we do it. Yeah. And then she told me to go back to Mexico. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that was, those are the, like, I wanted to tell her, like, you are the dumbest person I've ever met in my entire life. But the thing is, like, even though I think that, I did, it, it still made me think, I was like, well, well, does she have a point? Or, But then the, the truth of the matter is, like, the night before that, I, uh, I did the same, pretty much the same set, the same jokes, and uh, a black lady came up to me to tell me how much she enjoyed the show. And that's always happened. Like, I've never had black people get offended at what I do. If anything, it's usually the white people that get all touchy about shit, about when I do racial stuff. But every now and again, like, you know, like I had an old lady in Virginia. I was back in the Bush days. I was telling some jokes about George W. Bush, and she came up to me and said, you should just be, feel glad that you live in America. And I was like, I am glad I live in America. The fact that I can say the things I just said on stage is because I live in America. But I guess she wasn't, the way I put it is like she, she wasn't uh, too happy with my, my progressive abolitionist uh, material. She would rather still stick to the 200-year-old 200 200 year America. But, you know, that's just what you deal with. I, I don't, it doesn't get to me now as much as it used to be. It used to be scared to... Cross certain lines, yeah. Upset people, yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, it's 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 tricky doing. Like you talk about you being afraid of black people, that you know yeah. you, you don't want to be racist, right? When this you know black uh, gangster looking guy is walking towards you, but at the same time you want to keep your iPod, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, and it's. I think you're 
you know, voicing the the inner fear of of uh, a lot of uh, yeah. Cowardly well, it's white true, people. And, then, and I said it the other day, and I haven't said it before, but I think it's, it's true. natural. You're you know you're. Um, our whole instincts are to perceive threats. And exactly. Things, and then you, you know you don't want to be racist. And that's what I, this thought pops in your mind. And that's how I premise it is that I w- it'd be a lot easier if I was, ra- if I was racist because then I'd be just like, yeah, screw black people. They scare me. But I'm not racist. So then that's why I feel guilty about the fact that, yeah, if I'm walking down the street and a thugged out black dude is walking my way now, you know, now I have this dilemma to to deal with. But I think, but it's it's hard to... It, at least for me, it's hard to like vocalize that or just say it because the risk is always there that the people are going to think, "Oh, he's just a racist." Because I don't, you know, that's not what I want to. Well, what are, what are what are some of your darkest thoughts that that haven't reached the stage yet? Darkest thoughts from this. I think you know what it, I do. I've done material. I do material about uh, concentrate. Like I, there, I have a long. I have a long three, four, three and a half minute bit about concentration camps that people quote to me all the time because somebody, I didn't put it, actually Matt Davis, he put it on YouTube. He used to do these shows, he called them the sin shows. It was service industry night, but it pretty soon turned into sin, like the dirtiest, darkest show you could do. So it was Matt and a lot of his friends and he would have me over a few times. And I did a show, I did a three and a half minute bit about concentration camps and he put it on the YouTube and apparently it's the first thing that comes up whenever people uh, YouTube me, because I don't have a whole, that's another thing. I have I don't have a whole lot of clips up on YouTube. But people but people will come up to me and say, oh my God, that concentration capsule, that's so funny. I was like, dude, I haven't told that joke in five years. So like I did, so I've done material like that. I've done concentration camps. I've done child molestation and, and uh, you know, politics, abortion, 9-11 jokes. I think the, I think this, the stuff that I'm, then the, the, the next step I need to take is actually be more personal. Like, have to, I think, you know, like talk about stuff that's more embarrassing about myself. I think that's like, I don't know. I've never. You mean make yourself more relatable to the people or show a sympathetic side? Well, I don't know if it's going to be sympathetic. Um, it might be, well, know. let me ask you this. Uh, do you Google sorrow, heartbreak, and human depravity and then. Write jokes about whatever <laughs> pops up. No, I don't know. Is that how you find your might, your material? No, but now that you gave me that idea, <laughs> now I want to have a whole new thirty minutes. Yeah, and then once you get that orthodox look, it's gonna be killer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just do the darkest shit. Yeah, and credit Tom Rhodes. You're gonna be the first credit. I thank you, Tom Rhodes, for the idea of my first the modest Yahoo of comedy is what I'm gonna start calling myself. My father was an insurance salesman and. He gave me some of the best comedy advice that are, are basic things in sales. Because, um, like, when I was a young comedian and I tried to be really dark and edgy on purpose, and I would open with, like, the most vile mm-hmm. thing or just, you know, um, a, a joke that would I knew would upset at least half the people in the room. And my father told me, uh, there's an old saying in sales, they'll buy from a friend before they will a stranger. If you make friends with the audience first, you can take them down whatever dark road you want to. Right. If they like you first, yeah. you got to get them to like you. Yeah, I think. Yeah, and I think that goes back to the just being more myself on stage, where I'm, where I, uh, I present myself as who I am, and that I'm a real person instead of 
just an asshole saying asshole shit. Yeah, I think if I, and that's what I'm working on. I'm just trying to be more the way I am on stage uh, as I am off the stage. Just, yeah, just because uh, then people can, like, I, I've, I've had bookers that tell me that uh, my, I'm not tight enough. Like, I'll send a video in trying to get bookings. And they're, you're, uh, you're not tight enough. You're taking, there's too many pauses here. or you're, But the way I feel about it is that it just makes, the, the reason that I'm not, like, tight laughs per minute, it makes me more relatable as a person, as a human being. Because if I'm you have awkward pauses in between the jokes, if I have not awkward, <laughs> oh, those are inevitable. <laughs> I don't do those on purpose, yeah. But if I can just speak like in a conversational manner, as opposed to like set up on like boom, 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 boom. I if I can at least make it more as a conversation, then I can get them more on my side, where I can, like you said, get away with the darker shit later, or you know, it'll be like, oh, okay, yeah, he's. Different. I thought you did, especially. Here in Wisconsin, that opening with the Milwaukee's best, is this really Milwaukee's best? It's beer-flavored water. Yeah. I mean, that was a perfect illustration of, like I was telling you last night, when I was learning to water ski, it's hard to pull yourself up. Uh, but once you figure it out and you lift right up right. and you're cruising, that's what I thought watching you. You got, boom, right on top of the water. I th and it helps. It helps. Like I try, well, I mean, it's just, it's nothing. It's not a new technique. But yeah, if you start off strong, then you've already proved to the audience that you can make them laugh. And then they'll just, they'll go along and like, they might not get another joke later on, but if you already made them laugh, then they're like, oh no, he's funny. I mean, maybe this joke, I didn't get it, but he's funny. Whereas if I start weak, then I might just lose him at the, you know, at the very beginning and they'll never cut me another break. So that, you know, that Milwaukee, the, the Milwaukee's best bit, that whole is like, it's a drinking thing. So it's pretty relatable, especially at a nightclub. So they can relate to that. It's a common reference. So it works and it, you know, it gets my, you know, it gets the, the motor running for the rest of the show. Um, what is the most important knowledge you think human beings should have? <sighs> uh, the most important knowledge? Well, see, I, it's a tricky question because then I, I'd be claiming that I know what the answer to that is. What do you think is, is my most opinion, important? In my opinion, the most important thing is just to be a good person, just to be, and you know, then, then you can get into the debate, what is a good person? But I think, cause I need, I know, I know a lot of comics just because I do this. And a lot of comics are really funny, but some of them are just assholes. And I like, I don't, I don't, if you're, a, if, if you're really funny, but you're a dick, then I don't think it's worth it. I don't think it's worth the fact that you, that you, uh, that you're funny, that, that excuses you from being a decent human being. Like, I would rather at some point die and people say, like, oh, he was a good guy. You know, he, he, you know, he wasn't an asshole. You know, he wasn't trying to fuck people over all the time. You know what I wanted to say on my tombstone? What? Courteous passenger. Courteous passenger. <laughs> there you go. Never caused any trouble. I don't. And the, Decent to sit next to on a plane. Yeah. He won't, he won't chat your ear off. He might just nod off. I, uh, I, I would rather that, man. I would rather be that than like known as a as a dick i mean and i don't know maybe it's not the most artistic answer because you hear a lot of artists like big time artists were dicks like uh 
I don't know. I've heard uh, what Peter Sellers apparently was a huge dick. Oh yeah, God! I started reading his biography. I got about halfway through. I had to stop. Yeah, and he was. I started disliking him as a person. Right. He's like in bed next to his wife, talking. I forget what um, uh, Anita Ekberg or whatever like famous actress he was having an affair with. And you know they, they had those <laughs> those foes, big phones. You know. Yeah. Uh, back in the '60s or whatever, and they're in the same bed. He's under the covers yeah. talking to her. Yeah, Lou, Lou. He didn't even have the courtesy to take the phone in the next room. <laughs> and you hear about that all the time. Like, like Lou Reed, I've heard, was an asshole, too. Uh, uh, you got, I, I was listening to when you were talking with Dana Gould about Woody Allen. You know, he wasn't a big fan of Woody Allen anymore just because of his personal reasons. Right. And, and it seems like that's the case with a lot of major artists. But I, I, I mean, I think regardless of what your body of work is, just being a decent human being is Trump's anything else i'd still love to be recognized as a great comic but i wouldn't want to be a great comic and like oh that dude's a dick fortunately actually at least in comedy from what i've found most of the great comics are good people usually it seems like the assholes are the ones that are not that good and that's probably part of why their assholes are insecure and are afraid that you know you might try to take something away from them or, or top them in some sort of way uh, do you have any, um, uh, uh, oh yeah, you're, uh, you're, you're actually, you're not Mexican, you're Colombian. I'm Colombian, yeah. You're a hundred percent Colombian. Yeah, well my, I was born in New Jersey. Well, let me put you in the coffee maker. Ah, <laughs> see, it's either that or cocaine. <laughs> I'm glad you went with the coffee maker. If it was the eighties, you would have gone with the cocaine reference. I, yeah, I was born in New Jersey, but my, both my parents are from Colombia and I lived there like 10 years and my, I think, it, well, I want to say that I get some of my sense of humor from living in Colombia, but it's funny. Have you ever, because you, you, your folks are, what is it, your mom is from Argentina? My mom is from Argentina. Did, yeah. Have you ever checked out the the comedy, like the comedy there? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I went to Buenos Aires and I saw some stand-ups, but um, it, it took a while for the jokes to be translated to me. Oh, yeah. Well, that's always great when you have to wait for the translation to the joke. And then the explanation. Yeah, I actually, when I lived in Colombia, there wasn't even a thing of stand-up. There would be there would be comedians, but they would just be joke tellers. They would get up there and tell knock knock jokes or whatever, dirty jokes. So there was really like no like, and it's still to this now. There's some stand-ups, but still a lot of the comedy, and I think in in Latin America in general is like twenty, thirty years behind what it is in the states. Like they're like it's still very vaudevillian when you watch. If you ever watch Univision, a lot of slapstick, a lot of Exactly. A lot of uh, gay guys getting hit in the balls with right. a guy stepping on a rake. And the chicks with big tits and all that sort of thing. So what my, I love about Spanish television, even if it's, um, you know, uh, even like the, the, the news journalists, uh, the field reporters, they've all got, it's all women with great oh, yeah. cleavage. They're all super hot. Give me like a bloody car wreck and I still <laughs> manage to get some cleavage yeah. shots. Yeah, that's yeah. They're all fucking you know as bad as, and that, as bad as the as the U.S. media is. At least you know Greta Van Susteren is still on the air. She wouldn't she wouldn't make it anywhere in fucking Mexico. But no, so that's it. So my my humor mostly comes from my family. Like just my dad is probably the funniest person I know, and then all my uncles are hilarious. So that's where I got it. But I never really thought I would ever do stand up comedy just because I was always a very shy person. It just ended up working out that way, and I'm, and I'm blessed that I was born here, because if I was still in Colombia, I wouldn't have had the outlet to do stand-up comedy. You'd be a FARC rebel. 
Yeah, that's probably what I would be. The government. I would, yeah, I would be with a mask on, <laughs> holding hostages. Uh, well, but you lived in Colombia when you were a boy, and you came to the states at how old? I came. Well, I was born in Jersey, and I was. We oh, moved, yeah. Then I, we moved to Colombia when I was about five, and I went back and forth for a few years. But then I lived there straight from from I was ten till I was sixteen. Like I went through high school, middle school. I once I finished high school, moved back to uh, the states, lived in North Carolina. That's where I started doing stand up comedy, and uh, yeah, been here ever since. And you told me the other night that your dark humor was uh, was influenced a lot by uh, being in Colombia as a boy, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, when I lived there, it was uh, would like the peak of the whole narco terrorism shit, Pablo Escobar. Every day in the news, there would be like some car bombs. I mean, there was that, and there was the FARC, and there was every other guerrilla, and the paramilitary. So there's violence everywhere. I'm a little, you know, I was a kid when I was there, so I can't claim to understand it. You know, I didn't know what was going on. I would just see it in the news. But yeah, I mean, there's death everywhere. It's bound to influence the way you think. And then, you know, when I started doing stand-up comedy, I was just... I, I, you know, I, I guess maybe like you were saying earlier, it's like maybe it's when you start out, it's your, your drive is to be as controversial as possible or something. And so I was doing really dark jokes, even at the beginning. But, you know, like, you know, like you were saying, you know, it's better, you know, what is it that your dad said to buy from a friend? Than They'll from buy a... from a friend before they will a stranger. Yeah. And I think at first, when I first started out, my attitude was just, fuck Fuck the audience. I'm just, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'm telling these jokes, and if you don't get it, then you're stupid. There was also a, there was an older comedian from Chicago named Jimmy Wiggins. Uh-huh. I think he still does. Oh gigs. shit! I work and with he's Jim the, he goes by the moniker of um, the oldest hippie in America. And I worked with him in that period when I was really young, and I was just going up doing like just you know just dark, filthy, whatever, all up front. And he also told me at that same time, uh, you, when you, you, you when you have sex with a woman, you don't just rip her pants off. Don't go on stage as a comedian and rip her pants off. Remember that. First, you must play with her clit. <laughs> so I worked with him like for a week. I was a really young comedian, and every night before I went on stage, he would go, play with their clit. Yeah, it's like a samurai <laughs> saying. I think, yeah, it's been the art of war, isn't it? Play with their clit. <laughs> yeah. That's, I, that's funny. I worked with, with him like three years ago in Wisconsin. I forget the name of the town. And he's still doing it, man. He's got his long hair and he was killing it. But I think, did you, so did you, did you play with the clit? Did you take the advice? I, it, 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 uh, it, it took me a while. You know, you can't just Start doing a new act the next day, <laughs> right? But it, but the other thing is, like, I was always thinking, I did rearrange some stuff though. But what, like, the reason I was asking is because I, I think at least in my case, when I was first starting out, if I got advice, I think I would have been more standoffish about it. I might have been like, ah, oh, you just don't get it, old man. Right? I, you know, I'm, you know, you just. You're I wasn't like that. I, I I listened to people even if they were. I mean, not always. Good. Not always. I mean, I had comedians and different. Um, some club owners tell me I, it would be funnier if I changed the joke this way. Yeah. And then I thought, nah, fuck that. But, like, to go up and make friends with them first or play with their No, that, it's definitely yeah. good I mean, advice. even if you're doing dark material, you can still – and if you're a young comedian, you're going to be likable anyway, if, even if you just 
dick around for the first three minutes, not doing any jokes. I think another thing that I learned when I was doing that tour with Stanhope is I have, like I said, I have some really dark jokes. And they would never, I mean, when I would tell them, I always try the joke at least once somewhere just to give it a shot. And they wouldn't work. And then a lot of time I would attribute it to, oh, okay, this this crowd is not open-minded enough for this joke. You know, if it was a more open-minded crowd, then they would dig this joke, even though it's this dark. And then I did, I tried a few of those jokes because they're just in the, you know, in the archives. So I would pull them out at the Stanhope tour. I was like, oh, this is the perfect chance. This crowd is a Stanhope crowd. I'll try these dark jokes. Should work here. And they would still, I mean, they might get a few chuckles, but they were still not hitting. And that's when I realized, you know what, maybe it's just not funny enough, you know, because it's got to, it can't just be dark. Right. It's got to be clever somehow. It's got to be funny. And I think that's, you know, that's another thing that I'm, that I kind of started to realize doing that tour with Stanhope is that, yeah, you can't always just blame it on the crowd. Not no, there are, there are hacky dark jokes that can be done. Oh yeah, that's know? too. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's also true. So, you know, it's just a, that's part of what I've been trying to learn. And that's just something that you can't teach, you know, it's just, that's part of the process. Um, you know what a Colombian necktie is, right? No, I'm guessing it's something dirty. You really don't know what a Colombian necktie is? No. Uh, and, and this is a thing that I tried to make into a bit. Um, that in, 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 uh, in, in Glasgow, Scotland, if you cross a, a gangster there, a tough person, um, they'll cut your face open in a s- smile so that when you're, you know, you get the stitches, your mouth is cut open. And when you, your stitches and your wound heals, you've, you're left with this permanent jackass smile on your face. Like the Joker? Like the Joker. And it's called um, the Glasgow Smile. Now, I'm from Florida. And in South Florida, during the, the height of the drug wars in the 80s and 90s, uh, if you crossed a Colombian cocaine dealer, trafficker, whatever, um, they would slit your throat long ways from your chin down to your, um, um, what is that, uh, the, uh, the, whatever, the top of your um, uh, rib cage, mm-hmm. and they, your tongue starts way down here, and they pull your tongue out through your throat, oh. and your tongue would flop down to, like, beneath your belly button. Good Lord. And that's called a Colombian necktie. Well, see, now I have and a new topic for a joke now. All in all, I'd rather have a Glasgow smile. <laughs> yeah, no shit. When, the, when you're faced with those two. Wow, I had never heard of yeah, that. I've tried Is that to really do, true? I've tried to do it on... Yeah, I grew up in Florida. So that's that's what my state is known for, the uh, of heinous uh, dismemberment. Florida's like, fucking weird, man. Yeah. I, know, I don't work there very often. We were talking about this earlier. It's just it seems like Florida's got a very insular scene where the comics in florida work in florida and it's just mostly florida comedians working there but anytime i have been there it's always a weird diversity of people that you get you get like rednecks in the north and then you got a big hispanic population and just the natives it's always interesting to me when i'm in florida i don't I just can't stand the weather is what it is you don't like the heat i don't like the heat and the humidity the humidity is what kills me like that was what a tour I was doing with Stanhope. We were there in Florida in fucking August, mm. and and I wear these. And you wear all black. I wear all black. Yeah. Suits and stuff. So I was. It was not. I was staying inside the hotel room most of the time. Go to, and 
but the problem is some of the places we did didn't have because we do rock venues and shitholes like that didn't have AC, so it was just like a sweat lodge in a lot of these. Oh yeah. Venues. Well, uh, you're going to Appleton. Yeah. Today. What's, what's your game plan for Appleton? Well, we're going to try to find a couple of nurses. <laughs> if that doesn't work. If you meet those nurses, tell them I said thanks I'll for send the them job. your regards. I'll it wouldn't have been a great story if yeah. they had they're probably, sex with me. They're probably on meth now. They, they, they went through that period. I think they were innocent little Wisconsin girls wanting to. And now they're not. They were just um, super freaking. <laughs> well, the plan is to, because that's another club that I'm there for the first time. And... Uh, so it's going to, and I've heard it's a great club. I've, I haven't uh, worked a weekend there before, so I'm just kind of like this. It's going to be a lot like this. The only difference, though, is uh, I think, I don't think I mentioned, I was going to mention it earlier. When I booked the gig, I almost didn't get it because the headliner is a clean comic, mm. so a pretty clean comic, and the owner of the club had heard that I was opening for Stanhope. Mm. So that's another thing I got to, you know, why I tone it down sometimes in the middle spot, because... They don't. If it's a really picky open headline, uh, uh, headliner, a clean headliner, then they'll be like, "No, that guy's too dark. I can't have." But fortunately, I'd work with the particular headliner I'm working with next week. I had worked with him before last year, and he was cool. He's a very nice guy. But I almost didn't get the gig. Like I had to I had to confirm. Like the booker emailed me. I was like, "Hey, he's not sure if you should do it." And I had to like, "No, it's okay. I can switch gears." So that's why you know that's why I don't do the darkest material. So I probably won't be doing the darkest shit I've got at Skyline. Even if even if I wasn't working with a clean comic, I might still try to take it easy just because I'm still working on trying to... If it's a new club, I want to be invited back. Right. Once, once I've already been there a couple of times and they know me and they know I've done well, then I'll take more chances. Uh, Harry Houdini was from Appleton. Really? Yeah, there's the Houdini house there. I think he was born in Hungary or Czechoslovakia or something, but... That's where when he, he came to the States when he was a boy. They, he settled in Appleton? Yeah. That one, I always wonder how people settle in places like Appleton. Like, right. Why, why did they, Bob Dylan's parents go to Duluth? Yeah. I don't... Why did, well, sometimes I wonder. Sometimes I do these one-nighter shows in middle-of-nowhere cities in West Virginia, and I wonder why people still live in the cities. <laughs> right. you know? They should be... Uh, Abandoned little villages. I know. It's like it's almost depressing. I'm doing the gig in whatever this shitty little town, and and you know you do the show, and I almost in my head I'm thinking almost like okay we're gonna we're here to, for this show, but everybody goes away afterwards, right? We're all nobody's staying in this town for the rest of their lives, are they? And it's almost depressing to me to think about how some people will just stay in one place forever and never venture, never venture, or even. I wonder, like, I wonder if they just don't want to venture or if they just can't. Uh, maybe TV's too good. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. DVR. <laughs> DVR is killing the tourism industry. All right, Carlos. Well, it was, it was great working with you. And we're, we're in Wisconsin, uh, home to the most heinous uh, serial killers of all time. That's right. Ed Gain and Jeffrey Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer. So be careful at the rest area tonight. Oh, yeah, no. Maybe I'll get some <laughs> new material, if nothing else. And uh, it was great working with you in Madison, man. Great working with you too, man. Hope These to wholesome again. people, all drinking apple cider with their rosy cheeks, <laughs> and their lumberjack their shirts. Lumberjack shirts, yeah. 
Um, do you have any advice or words of wisdom you'd like to give to the people of the world? Uh, let's see. Well, be a good person. Doesn't that kind of encompass everything? Just be good. Don't, don't do no, like, I'm a, I'm a very libertarian in that sense. And then like, as long as you're not fucking with anybody, then do whatever the fuck you want to do. That's Christ-like, and I think you should maintain that theme when you go <laughs> the, fuck the full, part, the full orthodox. The fuck part. <laughs> <laughs> That's very Christ-like, so you should be more Jewish? No, no, no. I, it's, it's, um, it's Christ-like. Well, he was a Jew, I guess, so. Yeah, certainly. Maybe I'll go, maybe that'll be my next look. Jesus. Long I think hair, you should go with the, with the full orthodox thing. Well, I'm just going to go from deity to deity to deity. <laughs> one year you're like a monk, a Buddhist monk oh, yeah. with a burgundy robe on. The next day I'm whatever, the one, the Vishnu or whatever with the seven light, seven arms. Which one is it? I don't know. I need to be better well, better read in Hindu. Ashna, which one is the god with, with the, all the arms? With all the arms. <laughs> Shiva? Is it Shiva? All right, you don't know either? Okay. All right, well, thank God for Wikipedia. All right, Carlos. Well, hey, you're a good man. You're a good man, too. Tom. Long way you run, brother. Thank you for having Long me. Long way you run.